For this Friday, September 20th, this is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Just ahead, U.S.-China relations. From President Richard Nixon's breakthrough back in 1972 to the recent protests in Hong Kong, how can we best understand that country? This as trade negotiations resume between Washington and Beijing. The stakes, they are enormous for American farmers, tech companies and automakers, and for China as well. The clock is ticking. With U.S. voters going to the polls next year, the Trump White House is pushing for a solid deal sooner rather than later. We explain all of this with Ryan Haas. He is currently a senior fellow and a China expert at Brookings. He also served as a senior foreign policy advisor during the Obama administration. But first, President Nixon's remarks in February of 1972 before he made that historic trip to China. If there was a postscript that I hope might be written with regard to this trip, it would be the words on the plaque which was left on the moon by our first astronauts when they landed there. We came in peace for all mankind. That from then-President Richard Nixon on the South Lawn of the White House, February 17, 1972. Ryan Haas, as you hear those remarks, how did we reach that point and where are we today? Well, at that moment, President Nixon was absorbed by the Cold War, was looking for a way to strengthen America's ability to compete with the Soviet Union, recognized that China had significant animosities with the Soviet Union, and saw an opportunity to pull China closer to us to challenge Soviet power. And so it was a pure, hard-nosed calculation of national power that drove the United States and China to come together in 1972. From that moment until now, a lot obviously has changed. At the time, in 1972, we faced a common enemy in the Soviet Union. Later on, we faced a common threat from terrorism. After that, we saw a common challenge in the form of climate change. At this moment in 2019, there really is not a lot of commonality in the relationship between the United States and China. And that is part of the undercurrent that is informing the the friction that uh, is manifesting itself in a variety of ways, most notably in the trade space, but really across the board. We are in a moment of comprehensive confrontation where every aspect of the U.S.-China relationship is currently very fraught. Many of us remember the game Risk. I bet it's something that you played when you were younger, maybe even today. But this was really a, a chess match, a geopolitical move by Richard Nixon in the early 1970s. Absolutely. And it's also, Steve, worth bearing in mind that from that moment until today, a lot has changed, but it hasn't been on a linear path. There have been a lot of zigs and zags in the U.S.-China relationship. In many respects, the 1980s were a period of optimism. Deng Xiaoping was a committed reformer. Uh, There was democracy breaking out in Taiwan and South Korea, glasnost and perestroika in the Soviet Union, in a sense that maybe, just maybe, China could be moving down the path leading in the direction of, of political reform and, and perhaps even in the future democracy. Many of those hopes were shattered in 1989 with the Tiananmen tragedy. And after that, uh, the relationship went into a freezer for a significant period of time, multiple years, until the Taiwan Strait crisis in 1995-96, in which both countries were forced to confront the reality that uh, having limited channels of communication 
increased risk of miscalculation and raise the potential for conflict. And following that, President Clinton at the time made a decision to enter into comprehensive engagement with the Chinese. And uh, it was a period of ups and downs, but really a period focused on seizing opportunities as China's economy was growing. Uh, President George W. Bush entered office and was talking about China as a strategic competitor all the way up until September 11th, at which point the global war on terror really overtook everything else in, in American foreign policy, and China as a, glo- as a strategic competitor receded uh, from the fore. I mention all these things just to say that uh, there, there have been a lot of ups and downs, but I think that this moment may be different than the previous ups and downs, simply because the, the friction that exists in the relationship feels more structural now and less event-driven than has been the case in the past. Some really good historical perspective, and and I want to come back to where we are today. But let me go back very briefly to our 37th president. He arrives in Beijing. This was a really a media sensation. It was covered wall to wall by the broadcast networks. And on February 21st, 1972, this toast to the Chinese leader, Zhou Enlai. This is the hour. This is the day for our two peoples to rise to the heights of greatness which can build a new and a better world. Was this breakthrough one of the significant developments in the second half of the 20th century? Oh, I would argue so. It's worth bearing in mind that prior to President Nixon's trip to China, the United States had engaged in three wars in the Asian theater in just the 20th century alone. A quarter million Americans had either been killed or injured in Asia, in World War II, in the Korean War, and in the Vietnam War. Since President Nixon's trip to China, there has not been a shot fired in anger or an American soldier that has died on a battlefield in Asia. So, yes, I think that uh, that his trip was a a watershed moment of historic significance. You mentioned Tiananmen Square, the comments of then-President George H.W. Bush, June 5, 1989. The demonstrators in Tiananmen Square were advocating basic human rights, including the freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of association. These are goals we support around the world. These are freedoms that are enshrined in both the U.S. Constitution and the Chinese Constitution. Throughout the world, we stand with those who seek greater freedom and democracy. This is the strongly felt view of my administration, of our Congress, and most important, of the American people. If you could explain, what was it all about? Well, in the United States, I think a lot of people associate Tiananmen with a desire by students to gain greater say over uh, their government, to make their government more responsive to their demands and their needs. And I think that was an important element of what was going on. But there was another feature as well. Inflation had run rampant in China in the lead-up to Tiananmen. And there also was uh, the death of a figure, a very prominent figure, a reform figure in China, that had served as a impetus for students to go to Tiananmen Square to commemorate his death. And so when you add all these features together, you had a, a unanticipated groundswell of Chinese civic activism that caught the Chinese Communist Party off guard and that really betrayed the depths of brutality that the Chinese Communist Party was willing to go to to preserve its hold on power. And, of course, over the summer, we heard this in the streets of Hong Kong and the remarks by the Hong Kong leader, 
Carrie Lamb. We cannot agree or accept that violence is a solution to our problems. Our foremost priority now is to end violence, to safeguard the rule of law, and to restore order and safety in society. As such, the government has to strictly enforce the law against all violent and illegal acts. That's from the leader of Hong Kong, and some have compared Tiananmen Square in the late 1980s to what we saw over the summer in Hong Kong. Is that a fair comparison? Well, I hope it isn't a comparison that leads to a similar outcome. Uh, You know, there's a tragic situation unfolding in Hong Kong. I worry that it will lead to a tragic outcome similar to what was experienced in Tiananmen Square in 1989. The precipitating factor for the protests in Hong Kong was uh, Carrie Lam's decision to try to push through an extradition bill that would have set a legal precedent for Hong Kong citizens to be extradited to the mainland where they would face uh, uh, the prospect of uh, having to go through the Chinese judicial system, which is notorious for being non-transparent and and, uh, not necessarily predictable. Uh, But underlying all of that, I think there, there is a sense amongst the Hong Kong people that their opportunities are dwindling that the challenges that they face in terms of finding uh, jobs, uh, affordable housing, uh, is becoming harder, and that their political system is becoming less responsive uh, to their their situation. And so underneath uh, the protest, I think there is a pent-up frustration and a desire to be heard. Um, but it's, uh, it's unclear where this will all lead. What does China want from Hong Kong? I think that over time, China wants to make Hong Kong more like every other Chinese city. It wants to integrate and fold Hong Kong into uh, the mainland so that Hong Kong does not serve as a beacon or as a, uh, as a model uh, for, of separateness and of uh, freedom and independence and rule of law and freedom of the press that could serve as a source of inspiration for Chinese citizens inside the mainland. And yet we've seen the resistance. It's been fierce and determined in Hong Kong. Absolutely. Uh, much as we were just discussing with uh, Tiananmen Square, the, the Hong Kong authorities have uh, resulted to um, pretty egregious acts of violence to suppress uh, the Hong Kong protesters. I will add that there are elements of Hong Kong protesters, uh, the significant majority of which are peaceful, but there are also violent elements within uh, the, the, the Hong Kong protesters as well. And so we are in a situation where both sides uh, have staked out maximalist positions. And the question will be whether there is enough space left for pragmatism to prevail and for progress to be achieved, or whether both sides are going to make the perfect the enemy of the good. Based on what you said a moment ago, you seem worried. I am concerned, uh, just because the, the trend lines are moving in a negative direction. Both sides feel very entrenched, uh, and they feel justified in their views. And um, so I don't – it's impossible for me to predict what trajectory this will, will go, go on. But uh, I do think that there is a combustible element to the protests in Hong Kong that merit our serious sustained attention. So let's turn to where we are today in terms of our relationship or maybe lack thereof with China. Here is President Donald Trump. 
China has been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. I'm not just talking about during the Obama administration. Uh, you can go back long before that. How is China taking advantage of us? Well, the issue that President Trump spends the most time focusing on when he talks about China is the trade balance, the fact that China runs a trade surplus with the United States, and more broadly, that there is an unfair trading relationship between the United States and China. What uh, what he really is focusing in on is the fact that China's state-owned enterprises have privileged positions in China's economy. Uh, China has lax protection of intellectual property. There are requirements for American companies to transfer technology as a condition of entry into the Chinese market. And China uses industrial policies to advantage its own companies at uh, the expense of American competitors. And so President Trump has used tariffs as his tool of choice to try to pressure China to moderate and alter some of its economic practices. And you have written extensively about this. I want to share with our listeners uh, part of what you've written. It's available online at brookings.edu. Quote, U.S.-China strategic competition will be a critical lens through which to view the relationship in the coming years, but it cannot be the only one. Yeah. What I'm really trying to argue there is that a relationship of unvarnished confrontation between the United States and China is not likely to increase the United States' ability to influence how China identifies and pursues its interests. And it will deprive the United States of the ability to work with China in areas where we do share interests, such as on dealing with the effects of climate change. Moreover, uh, a policy of unvarnished confrontation with China is not a policy that's supported by any of our friends or allies anywhere in the world. And my concern is that by going down this path, uh, it will be more a source of isolation than of influence for the United States. If you're an Apple or a Google or another company that uh, has and wants to continue to do business in China, if you could step back and explain the whole issue of intellectual property, what are the demands from the Chinese government and why do American companies give in to those demands? Well, uh, on the latter question, I think that uh, one of the factors is that China is the second largest economy in the world. It's the source of much of the revenue for many leading American companies, whether it's General Motors or Apple or other iconic American brands. And so these companies face a very difficult choice, uh, whether to leave the China market because of their frustration with the lack of intellectual property protection and the uh, the pressure by China to transfer technology, or whether to absorb that pain as a price of doing business in the fastest growing engine of the global economy. What are these companies giving the Chinese government, and what does the Chinese government do with that? Well, uh, it's uh, it differs sector by sector, province by province, city by city, so it's very difficult to generalize, but generally speaking... Uh, Chinese localities uh, pressure American companies that are seeking to enter their markets to hand over uh, intellectual property that is then given to Chinese state-owned industries that eventually become competitors with the American company that have entered the market. You have also written a lot about what's called the China's Belt and Road Initiative. Explain. The Belt and Road Initiative is an ambitious worldwide project that uh, is intended to increase connectivity with all roads leading back to Beijing. And the Chinese have funded uh, or offered financing for many of these projects around the world. And we're talking about hundreds of countries, right? Not just a handful. That's right. Uh, what started out uh, in China's neighborhood has now spread 
across the world in really every corner of the world. And there is a debate right now in the United States and in many other parts of the world about how to view China's Belt and Road Initiative. Is it merely an effort by China uh, to build roads and pipelines to strengthen connectivity, or is it the vehicle through which China is seeking to expand its influence and use economic coercive tools to compel countries to accommodate or be deferential to Chinese demands. There also is a strategic component to this. The Chinese have, in several instances, taken great interest in building ports along strategic waterways. And this is a source of intense concern, particularly for uh, our colleagues in the United States Navy. What's incredible is just how quickly China is growing, how the cities are becoming major metropolitan cities uh, on the scale of New York and Los Angeles across the country. Yeah, China, if you travel to Beijing or Shanghai right now, it is a glistening place uh, that is growing rapidly. Uh, a lot of that growth hasn't yet reached other parts inland in China, so there is still a significant poverty problem. And because of that, President Xi's number one domestic priority at the moment is anti-poverty issues. So, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's a, looking at China is a bit of a Rorschach test. Uh, some people look at China and see a, a, a country with steely strength on a rapid rise and feel threatened by it. And others spend time in China and uh, see that China does have abundant strengths, but also weaknesses as well. When we sit down with China to talk about trade policies, and these negotiations are continuing, what are the demands from the Chinese government, and, and what does the U.S. want? Well, I think of the trade talks as really working on three different levels. The lowest level, the first level, is the trade balance. This is what President Trump often talks about, the trade deficit and how he wants China to purchase more American products to shrink the trade deficit. The second level is market access issues, uh, making it easier for American companies to enter into the China market and sell to the China market. And then the third level is structural issues, these structural policy issues where China gives its own firms advantages over foreign competitors. The United States would like to make progress on all three levels. The Chinese would like to keep the talks narrowly focused on the lowest level of the trade balance. And the real tension is where the ultimate outcome of this negotiation will lead. My expectation is that it will probably fall somewhere in the middle, where the Chinese will agree to make purchases of American products that they, frankly, were already planning to buy. And they will agree to certain limited market openings, uh, particularly in the financial services sector, as well as a commitment to strengthen intellectual property protection in China. Who has the most leverage in these talks? Well, the challenge, Steve, is that both sides think that they have leverage in the talks. From the American perspective, the United States economy is strong. Uh, China is a, they view, uh, the Trump administration believes, a largely export-dependent economy, and therefore uh, we have certain leverage with China because their economy is decelerating. The more it decelerates, the more desirous they will be of a deal with us. From China's perspective, they look at uh, President Trump and they see a leader that is uh, facing re-election soon. Uh, they feel like they can target their tariffs, their retaliatory tariffs, geographically to cause acute pain in areas of the uh, United States that matter significantly to President Trump's electoral prospects. But they also think that they control their media. The United States doesn't. President Xi controls monetary and fiscal levers inside his country. President Trump doesn't. And so they see themselves as having certain advantages as, as well and think that they can sit back and wait for President Trump to come to them 
uh, as the election draws near. Let me ask about your own background. How and why is this your area of expertise? Well, Steve, I grew up in Seattle, which is obviously a westward-facing city. And I saw China as the story of our generation. China's rise would have uh, ripple effects that would uh, have great consequence for the future of the United States. So I wanted to find a way to get in on the action. I was uh, part of the Foreign Service in the State Department. I had the fortune of being posted to China, where I served for four years, after which I came back and worked at the White House for four years as the China director in the National Security Council staff for President Obama. And now I uh, have the good fortune of working at Brookings on China issues as well. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you think Americans have about China? I think that sometimes uh, the U.S. media does a very good job of talking about China's strengths and does a less good job of talking about many of the weaknesses that China confronts. What is the biggest weakness? Well, China is a country of 1.4 billion people uh, run by a small group of men uh, who are clinging to power um, with a system uh, that is becoming more calcified. And uh, it's a government that relies increasingly on brute force to maintain its hold on power. Uh, Underneath the surface, China is a very dynamic place um, that confronts many challenges, uh, whether it's the ballooning debt, the fact that uh, demographics are not working in China's favor. Um, Meanwhile, the United States has abundant advantages. We are the most innovative society in the world. We are a sponge for the brightest minds in the world. We have the best higher education system in the world. We have food and energy security. We have benign and peaceful borders. So I think that sometimes uh, in our observation of China, we focus very much on China's rapid rise and lose a little bit of perspective on America's own strengths in this competition. And of course, we have a ballooning debt approaching $23 trillion. And we hear the argument that uh, we owe China much of that debt. Can you break down the facts versus fiction on that? Yeah, China uh, is the largest holder of uh, American debt. Uh, And it's really a practical choice by the Chinese. They have uh, significant currency reserves that they need to find safe haven for. The United States has the deepest, most liquid capital markets in the world. And uh, it's not out of any altruism or goodwill that China has plowed so much of its currency reserves into the U.S. dollar. It's really uh, by a lack of alternatives. You follow American politics, and right now here in Washington, we are in the middle of, yet again, another budget battle and possibly another CR that will keep the government funding through early November. And I mention that because we seem to take a short-term approach when it comes to budget matters and planning. China is just the opposite. And when I say long-term, you're talking 20, 30, 50 years down the road. Can you explain? Sure, Steve. I think that you put your finger on a a very important issue. The Chinese have a tradition of long-term planning, and they use it to great effect. Uh, They use long-term planning to find realistic goals and objectives and to match resources to achieve those objectives over extended periods. That gives them an advantage from my perspective. But as we were just talking about, I also think that the United States maintain certain advantages of its own, including its, uh, its robust innovation culture. You know, Microsoft started in a garage. It wasn't centrally directed or planned, or uh, the 
beneficiary of support from the United States government. Um, there is a secret sauce that makes America the the most competitive, vibrant economy in the world, and I hope that we continue to find ways to nurture and develop that. So I guess what I hear you saying is that uh, we should be optimistic but also realistic when it comes to China and what they're looking for and our role in this relationship. I think that's a good way of putting it. It's going to be a very competitive relationship for many years to come, uh, and the United States needs to remember its advantages, and we are in a foot race with the Chinese. It's a competitive foot race. Um, the more that we can speed ourselves up, the more effective we will be at competing with the Chinese. And how does this affect our relationship with other Asian powers, most notably South Korea and Japan? Well, South Korea and Japan are two of our closest allies in the world. Uh, they share a desire along with us not to see Asia dominated by China, uh, which is uh, a source of attraction for us. And it's really incumbent upon us to find policies and strategies that are inclusive of their aspirations and their desires so that we can t continue to protect all countries in the region, the ability to pursue their own interests as they define them. I think President Obama would be the first to admit that he was a deep thinker who liked to debate these issues. In the area of your expertise with regard to China and your conversations with not only then-President Obama, but his national security team and his foreign policy team, how did he approach China? What are some of the, the lessons or stories you take away from that experience? Well, I think you describe it well. President Obama was a very cerebral, long-term thinker. He wanted to understand the big picture before he made decisions on specific issues. And he had tremendous respect for what China has accomplished and the, the path that China is on. Uh, but he also uh, felt that the United States had certain advantages as well and uh, was committed to finding ways to compete with the Chinese where we must, but also to cushion that competition with certain degrees of cooperation where it serves American interests to work with the Chinese. To that point, again, going back to your writings, quote, strategic competition between the U.S. and China requires concerted U.S. efforts in a range that domains beyond traditional defense issues alone. That's right. I think that one of the areas that has been underexplored in the United States-China relationship is what effect robotics and artificial intelligence will have on both societies. And in certain areas, uh, I think that the emergence of artificial intelligence technology will serve as a catalyst of competition between the United States and China. As these technologies become more and more integrated into weapon systems, for example, there is real risk of, uh, of intensifying competition. But in other areas, whether it's medical research or forecasting the effects of climate change, the United States and China could benefit from collaboration and, and sharing of best practices with each other. And my hope over the years to come is that we will develop a mature enough relationship where we can candidly confront areas where we have differences without allowing those differences to obstruct our ability to work together when it serves our interest to do so. And so do you think these tensions, this geopolitical relationship over trade and intellectual property and overall foreign policy relations with China will continue through this century? Is this going to be more of the same moving ahead? Well, I think that there will be ebbs and flows to how acute the competition is between the United States and China, but I do think that competition will be an enduring feature of this relationship for decades to come. If our listeners want to follow you on social media, on Twitter, how can they do so? My Twitter handle is 
at Ryan L underscore Hass, H-A-S-S. And at Brookings? Uh, I am at Brookings, the Brookings Institution. I have a uh, office there, a website as well. Bottom line, complete this sentence. In order for us to best understand our relationship with China, we need to understand what? America's strengths and Chinese ambitions. We thank you for being with us. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.